This is The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker. Our burdens. Not only do we struggle to define them as a universal collective, we also find it challenging to unravel them. The sixth human mass extinction is an example of this existential phenomena. Our planet, unarguably, is in decline. Yet as a global collective of humanity, we often find ourselves remiss for an effective cure. The intractable crisis of planetary survival is not without timely solutions. Yet to most people, the solutions seem strangely foreign, like science fiction. With doom and gloom, both media and science weaving a harrowing narrative of our imminent demise. The end is near. Our destruction? Inevitable. Is there an incalculable truth within this tale, or are we chasing a fevered dream? A change is at hand, yet the change to what? Uncertain. During the beginnings of an age of illusion, how is a conscientious soul to discern the truth? The only thing standing between us and non-existence? A viable solution. Frustrations expanding like the requiem of a slow dream, so too are passions for change slowly dying. Our only hope, thoughtful action. Today we look at how a common cognitive bias known as declinism might be the only thing standing between the so long and hello again of human evolution. Tune in to find out how we can forego these often debilitating limitations of declinism to forge a new dawn of change. When we return to the light inside. We'd like to offer a shout out to our affiliate matching partner, podmatch.com. Podmatch is the revolutionary podcasting matching system driven by AI. As an industry leader in podcast guesting and hosting, they are a go-to solution for creating meaningful podcast interactions. Podmatch.com makes finding the ideal guest or host effortless. Stop by and visit our affiliate link today at www.thelightinside.us. Fevered dreams are vivid, often bizarre, or unpleasant dreams sleepers can experience when they are ill or have a fever. These dreams happen similarly to other dreams. Although they can occur during any stage of sleep, most vivid dreams happen during rapid eye movement or REM sleep. During such an episode, the individual dreamer neither fully asleep nor fully awake, finding themselves lingering in a strangely disoriented neverland. Often, when suddenly shaken back to a reality that is wake time, those who experienced fevered dreams find themselves bewilderedly disoriented. Is this fiction or is this truth? The conundrum of climate change can often appear as this fevered dream. With its impact and imminent solutions endlessly unfathomable, in a world where illusions are constantly projected into the media, converted into perceived reality, and becoming cultural worldviews, how can a benign soul make an authentic choice? How can righteous laws and outcomes be designed in light of the predictable fallibilities of human perceptions, delinquencies, and self-serving behaviors? As a consequence, the lies become truth, and the possibility of having a global, superconductive culture of conscious eroded. Life on Earth has a high probability of surviving. Even so, maintaining the dignity of all life is a completely feasible goal, and that desired change is only one action plan away. Our guest Jeff Hardy has made a career of caring for the health of others. A 50-year veteran of career facility design, Jeff has founded hospitals globally and through his service became a de facto voice for world peace. Now, as an author, in his book, To Care for Peace, in an effort to end the sixth human mass extinction, he issues a global mandate to secure the second human evolution. Jeff, what is the sixth human mass extinction and how does it affect humanity as we exist in this current dimension of reality. I would think that you can answer the first part of that question better than I. I'm not focused at all on the sixth human extinction. I'm focused on the second human evolution that has not occurred yet. 
What an inspiring way to illustrate that call to action and to effectively apply those principles. Jeff, unconscious behavior patterns and the declinism bias play crucial roles in exasperating the cycles of belief that often occur behind the theory of the sixth mass extinction. In this episode, we look at one unconscious behavior pattern specifically that significantly diminishes our ability as humans to shift this cycle of evolution. The declinism bias is a cognitive bias that influences our perspective of the future, leading us to believe that things were better in the past and are getting worse over time. This bias is often caused by our tendency to focus on the negative aspects of the present while ignoring the positive aspects of the past. How do you feel this declinism bias influences our ability to positively address future change? Well, I would say that my perspective is to not be the deer in the headlights. And what I say to my wife and my children and my friends is don't worry, act. Get that stick out of my backside and let's aim for the carrot. And I'm much more positive driven and my career has been focused on action towards getting away from that negativity and avoiding the problems that we're headed toward extinction. I mean, that's just a fact. So what am I going to do? Be the deer in the headlights? Or am I going to act as though, while that's true, why just sit around not doing something? And so my final action in my life, my career, was to go to Myanmar which is the country that's to the left of Thailand for anybody who doesn't know where Burma is, which is quite understandable. But we went to Myanmar, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, and built a community development and health center. And by doing that, we inspired the government, the region, the state, and the villagers to do something, to grow to become a wonderful village that was so far away from civilization that they knew of or that they knew about or that they experienced that when they saw us coming, they thought we were zombies or something. I don't know. But the key is we started a nonprofit organization called Care for Peace. And that's not just an adage that sounds good. We believe that If you actually care, then you will have peace. And so it's that whole positive energy that helps us get away from doomsday talk and doomsday feelings and gives us purpose and allows us to find a purpose in that, not just take the purpose, but use it. Share with us a bit of your background and how you landed in this specific direction of focus. My background was long time ago, I was a hospital corpsman, like a nurse in the United States Coast Guard Reserve. And during my active duty, I took care of Vietnam vets who were coming back from the war. And that is when the aha moment of the actual act of caring produces a kind of peace that is absolutely the opposite of the kind of peace we think about when we're thinking about the space between wars or after war or sitting up on top of a mountain with your legs crossed and thinking about whatever you're thinking about that is not connected to humanity and the humanity that is right there in front of you. And My background began those days in the Coast Guard 50 years ago, and then it gradually became an amazing experience when I met nurses all over the world who were feeling the same as I and doing that care and finding that peace and discovering the most wonderful feeling in the world of peace that you get when you're taking care of people. And only after my career of helping some of the richest corporations in America, like Columbia HCA, Kaiser, 
helping build hospitals, plan hospitals, manage hospitals, that I decided I would turn everything over and start my own nonprofit organization and help people in the world in places like Nigeria, Vietnam, Kenya, and finally Myanmar, helping them get what it was on a nonprofit basis that I had been helping people who were in the rich countries all my life. And Care for Peace did a full circle beginning that day in the Coast Guard and then finally graduating to the point where we were showing a country that it's possible to care for your people and have peace for the people. (laughs) All of a sudden, the definition of Care for Peace expanded. So what my hunch is, is that if we just keep going, we should be able to do that for the world and avoid getting the sixth human extinction while we're still alive. <laughs> I don't want to be there. I want to I want to live my kids to live my grandkids, great grandkids to live. So that's where we're at right now. And that's where it began. Let's begin, if we might, by looking at a much larger assumption if we could. Why should we focus so much energy on this phase of our conscious existence if our human state of being is merely a transitory response to consciousness? That's a challenging question because it goes to who I am and what I do, because that's the only answer I can give you. My answer is based on my experience. And my experience is that I'm just not going to sit around waiting because Why sit around waiting for this sixth extinction? Um, I'm not at that level. That's not who I am. It's not where I'm going. And I just don't understand the idea that as a deer caught in the headlights, uh, you know, do we just stand there and wait till splat? Whatever it was that was behind those headlights plows into us. I'm not there and I, I can't get there. It's not who I am. Your question is is challenging, and I appreciate it because there are a lot of people in the world who are saying, oh, my gosh, it's the cartoon with the guy holding the placard on New York Street saying the world is coming to an end. I'm saying, well, please, would you get out of the way? I'm trying to pass you. You know, I'm not. Okay, so the world's coming to an end. What do you do with a placard at night? You just kind of put it beside your bed and go to sleep and then get up in the morning and say, oh, I guess the world didn't come to an end. Grab my placard, run out the street. The world's coming to an end. Oh, no, I can't do it. Not there. So now if you're looking at a Stephen Jay Gould answer to your question, I think that it's a marvelous question because we have to look at how did the dinosaurs get wiped off the earth? Why did a lot of animals disappear during that time? What are the differences between the first evolution, the second evolution, and the third evolution that occurred in the destruction and how the world has changed? As I say, I'm not there and I'm not the man to talk to when it comes to doomsday talk. I just, uh, Stephen Jay Gould did a marvelous job of chronicling and he got a Nobel Prize for it too. So uh, when it comes to extinction, It's there, I'm sure, but I'm not there. (laughs) That was intentionally loaded to be that kind of expansive question that allows us to kind of frame the context of today's talk. From that perspective, even though our lives are transitory, focusing on this stage of existence allows us to appreciate the beauty of life and gain insight into the nature of consciousness. In that regard, in many aspects, it allows us to form some significance and meaning to why we're here. It also provides the opportunity to make a positive impact on the lives of others as we travel through this journey of life. From that regard, specifically, how does the declinism bias affect our ability to create a more expansive level of change throughout our lives, especially in regard of Halcyon models of mass extinction? I don't know the answer to that question, and I find it a good question to be asking. The Holocene is something that it's actually a new word, and I'm not sure that it has even taken the meme power, the power of everybody's using the word, because 
when I mention the Holocene, people say, well, now what is that? Is that something that, where is the Anthropocene and the other epochs, this equation, what's the difference? And I'll explain, well, it's 11,700 years ago is the date that the scientists are putting on it, but it really, it really hasn't taken hold because it doesn't have a foothold in our mentality yet. And I think that as we move in that direction and understanding the direction of being able to use a common word, which it has not become yet, I think that we will be discussing where we're at now, which I consider to be the suspended human evolution between the first human evolution that really ended sometime in the mid-60s when humans decided that they can control nature when the mutually assured destruction became the rule of the global community that we could kill everything if we want. And that's the end of the first human evolution. And so here we are in this suspended human evolution, not really knowing what's going to happen and not knowing what's going to happen is part of the wondering process that keeps us saying, well, do we just sit around and wait for the extinction or do we look at potential for human inspired, created second human evolution? And my focus is, okay, how do we get there? Wow, that'd be great. Why don't we take this idea of the eventual extinction and allow it to kick us in the butt and say, okay, guys, and, you know, until that point, if that's a foregone conclusion, fine. Until that point, what are we going to do? And that's where I'm at right now. And I, I enjoy the inspiration that the sixth extinction challenges us because someone has put their finger on it. That's not yet a meme, but boy, it's close to it. It's it's close to it. It's not in the nightly news, but I think that we're we're getting to the point where the global mentality is, okay, uh, there's too many people. We have overconsumption, overmilitarization, overpopulation, all these overburdening the planet. Should we just keep going? Or, hey, is there something else that we could do? Hmm. <laughs> so that's where I'm at. Where are you at? Where, 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 where are you thinking in terms of where we're going as a human race? And where are we in that? trajectory towards whatever the future. That whole notion of the meme or social condition in and of itself becomes a very limiting, biased framework of viewing our human existence from the ground up. I'm going to reel it way back there. Are we even human? I'm going to go way back there. Are we even human or did we arrive here by some other means? That can be a very dissettling perspective for a lot of people to reel back. Rather than going back to some of our socially cultured beliefs, rather we go back to looking at some of our religious models of existence and how we transpired. We're starting to see some things on the horizon, I'll say on the horizon, quite literally seeing things on the horizon that suggest there are other ways of being within our consciousness. When we look at the extraterrestrial phenomena, what does it mean to be here present as a conscious being? I'm going to leave that very open because I am starting to look into and lean into some very broad perspectives on that. Openly and vulnerably accepting that acknowledgement that we may have been engineered in some regards. We may have been plunked down here by another conscious entity, another conscious realm. Perhaps oh, part of our limitation is that view alone that we thought we were here subjectively alone. I appreciate philosophy. Um, philosophy, in my opinion, is to go along with life, not be life. And yet there are philosophers who they eat, sleep, breathe and survive while they are philosophizing. I, I 
am not smart enough or I'm just not there enough to be doing what you're suggesting, which I really appreciate. We need philosophy. I need philosophy because it's what inspires me now. And when I hear people talking, and if you go to a church and you listen to the religious information and discussions, you're hearing thoughts that are the reasons for us to be alive and believe what we believe. My difficulties are the only answers that I find useful are the ones that I can find and use today. An example of that would be my father-in-law, who is a ordained minister, was a sack-cleared chaplain in the United States Air Force. And I went to many of his services, which were non-denomination, but pan-denominational services, and he would always bring it down in a sermon to today. So he'd have a biblical verse that he would recite and discuss, but then he'd say, now let's talk about how we make lemonade out of lemons. I, I remember that was one. And I, I remember everybody in the in the pews were, were chuckling because he was bringing it right down to now. And that's where I'm at. I can't think about the extraterrestrial stuff or the fact that I guess the Navy is starting to chronicle all the UFOs and there's discussion about having a whole division in the military for UFO sightings and, and all. And I find that fascinating. I'm not against it or for it. It's just, it's great. I enjoy it. I watch the news and see the latest flash on the screen. But again, it's not my purpose in life. My purpose is to act, is to do something and to do something for myself, for my family and for humanity. I want my kids and my grandkids to say, my father, my grandfather, my great grandfather didn't just talk about it. He did something about it. And that's one of my spiritual goals right now. <laughs> I don't know if that speaks to you or speaks to the things that you're talking about, but I think that the philosophies of life need to be part of our wondering. They need to be part of our conscience. They need to be part of what we think about as we start falling asleep at night. And they need to be part of our prayers and our thoughts. That's where philosophy belongs, in my opinion, and in my life. When it comes to mobile service providers, with their high rate plans, extra fees, and hidden cost or expenses, many of the big name networks leave a bad taste in your mouth. Mint Mobile is a new flavor of mobile network service, sharing all the same reliable features of the big name brands, yet at a fraction of the cost. I recently made the change to Mint Mobile, and I can't believe the monthly savings allowing me to put more money in my pocket for the things which truly light me up inside. Making the switch to Mint Mobile is easy. Hosted on the T-Mobile 5G network, Mint gives you premium wireless service on the nation's largest 5G network. With bulk savings on flexible plan options, Mint offers 3, 6, and 12-month plans. And the more months you buy, the more you save. Plus, you can also keep your current phone or upgrade to a new one, keep your current number or change to a new one as well, and all of your contacts, apps, and photos will seamlessly and effortlessly follow you to your new low-cost Mint provider. Did I mention the best part? You keep more money in your pocket. And with Mint's referral plan, you can rescue more friends from big wireless bills while earning up to $90 for each referral. Visit our Mint Mobile affiliate link at thelightinside.us forward slash sponsors for additional mobile savings or activate your plan in minutes with the Mint Mobile app. Our memories of the past often foggy and our present perceptions colored by this truism. Being aware of declinism could help us remember that when we think back fondly over the past, we're romanticizing our memories. However, emotions have a powerful impact on our cognitive processes, and awareness of bias alone 
may not be enough to counter the effects of declinism on our mindset and overall well-being. Pessimistic views of the present or future may cloud our ability to make rational decisions. It may therefore be best to start by countering this negative view. Looking at that role of implicit memory or reflecting upon the past, we'll frame that a little more open, reflecting on the past, you know, our past beliefs shaping our present perception and our future prospects. In that regard, the declinism bias is that tendency to assume that the future will be worse automatically than the present or that the implications are leading us to that subjectively worse state. In that regard, what role do you think our present level of ego development and emotional competency play in addressing these issues and how might that affect how that surfaces and the potential limiting beliefs we create around the ability to create that change? That's a juicy question. (laughs) Here's my visual. My visual is that I'm on a track right now. And these philosophies like declinism are on their tracks that are speeding by right next to me. And it's like, ooh, I'm not on that track, but it's a fascinating track to look at. It's who's on that track and, and is it pulling us? Is it pushing us or is it irrelevant? Is anybody on that train track or is it just a track that exists and the cars, the train cars are going at light speed and, and there's not a whole lot I can do about it. I, uh, but I think that declinism and, and you talk about the past and the past beliefs are fascinating to me, especially when I look at my own thoughts, my own evolution from being a, a baby, wah, 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 you know, crying and everything, and then believing in Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and, and then Santa Claus, and then uh, going to church and hearing some of the wonderful things that were coming out of that, the lessons, the life lessons that have been given to us from the past. The, 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 the Christian religion was such an unbelievable lesson lessons for me for the whole first part of my life and then going to college and learning about other religions and philosophies and then especially traveling all over the world building hospitals I experienced wonderful people. My wife and I worked in Bahrain and the Persian Gulf for one year. I really got to know the Arab religions, which was at the time mostly Sunni and Shia. The people that we worked with were mostly Arabic and some Jewish, but mostly the religions that our hospital owners would be espousing. And so we learned all about these other religions that were alive today. And I talked to people who had also been born with interesting understandings of the world and how it got to be where it was at that time on that day, and then how they had changed because of that gradual growth in their own spiritual development. And I think that the isms are the ones that sometimes get in our way of progressing the next step, because the key to progress is to be constantly looking at the next step and trying to not be burdened by decisions that were made for you or by you in the past, even if it's the recent past. And that's where opinions a lot of times get in our way of thinking about what that next step is. So when I think about declinism, for instance, I say, okay, that might actually be a fact. And it's not really an is-ism. It's we're declining. Look at what's happening in the world. What has happened? So I don't I don't even think that's an ism. I think that's a fact. And so the question then becomes what's the next step? 
And if we can't look at what the next step is, then what's the point? Are we just going to be the deer caught in the headlights? Or are we going to say, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to step aside and let that car pass. And then I'm going to keep thinking about what the next step is, because in my opinion, the next step as we are in this suspended human evolution phase, where we're actually thinking about what the second human evolution will be at my bequest at my action, what's the next step? And I think the next step is what you're doing. It's talking about it. It's discussing this with different people and getting input from a whole bunch of different people. That's why when I look at folks like you, I realize that you're the one who has a handle on thinking about and discussing the next step, because I don't know what the second human evolution is. I'm not going to let declinism be a ism. I'm going to let it be a fact and say, okay, that car is coming at it. Its headlights are in my eyes. What am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? I'm going to step aside and let it pass because we've got more important things to do right now. And that's to do exactly what you're doing, discussing what the second human evolution might be because we're in charge of it. And we need to use our knowledge and feeling and spiritual connection with God in our quest to find what the second human evolution will be. Our emotions, especially those we label negative, have a strong impact on our decision making, making it difficult to make rational and logical decisions. In that regard, to counter declinism, We can try to remind ourselves that nostalgia warps our view of the past and negative bias does the same for our present. What role or what effect do you feel experiential learning might have in limiting that ability to view a new perspective that might lead to that change? Well, the question has the answer in it. I mean, what is the perception? I mean, I accept the question hypothetical because what do we do with negativity? Well, My kid came up to me once he was six or seven years old and we were headed to the sea world and he had seen photographs of this gigantic whale jumping up and splashing and then jumping up again and then coming up to the edge of the water and kissing a selected child. There were 2000 people in the audience Well, my son came up to me and he says, the whale won't kiss me. The whale won't kiss me. I says, well, there's only one way to guarantee that the whale will kiss you. And so we got a big piece of cardboard out. We got felt tip marker, put a big heart on it. And we wrote, kiss me, kiss me all over the card. And so we went to SeaWorld and he went right up to the front of the audience and he held his sign up and Ed McMahon, the guy who used to be Johnny Carson's sidekick, was the one who was the MC that day. And when he came on out, he said, well, I guess we know who the whale's going to kiss today, won't we? And my son got the best <laughs> lesson in the world, which is don't be saying negative things and don't think negative things turn it around convert it to something that you can use use is very important use to me is more important than anything else democracy is only useful if it is based on common sense so you you can look at anything any ism that's out there. And if if there isn't a way you can use it, then what's the point of having it? I mean, so, and that's where declinism is wonderful because it reminds us, hey, we better do something about it. <laughs> we better use something if we can't use it. So I say, okay, declining is about it. Yeah, well, you know what? The whale won't kiss me. <laughs> <I'm gonna laughs> I'm going to turn that one around. Been doing some interesting study. I'll say study and observation on the Gaia channel lately on sacred geometry and the power of harmonic frequency. You know, the frequencies we put out in our actions, our emotions, our being. 
and how there is very hard scientific evidence of how we can shift those frequencies just like a magnet, very much like a magnet, same principle, to attract those things toward us that we desire, those things that are truly beneficial. An episode is in the works down the road on this very podcast looking at that. (laughs) So in that regard, as we look at things from a larger geopolitical and social scale, These unconscious patterns that we view from our past often compound those implicit biases that repel our ability to affect that change. We look at some of our modeled behaviors or modeled beliefs about consumption, overconsumption, deforestation, forestation. How we use things, as you mentioned, matters. Pollution, you know, there again, are we being economically and socially mindful of our patterns of how we utilize our resources. Touche. I um, I flashed on an experience I had. We were designing a hospital that was in Cambodia, and we found out about a hospital that had been designed around Feng Shui. And I realized that you can take some of these spiritual connection to geometry and to mathematics and science and convert it to architectural design that is very important to the spirituality of the people who use that architectural facility, design facility. And I realized that that's one aspect of taking something that is existing and converting it to something that's positive. And then when I hear you talking about the deforestation and some of the negative things and how we're going to turn that around. This is a, a feng shui that we are working with right now, trying to figure out. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was fascinating about China was how they could take oh, 500,000 people and say, okay, you guys, you're going to plant trees right now. And they planted trees. And I just find that to be a wonderful thing. And by the way, I don't look at countries. I look at the global situation. I I look at because the second human evolution has to be a global, not a internationalist movement. It does have to be globalist. And I don't think that when we use the words globalism and globalist right now, we are incorrectly using it. We are using that word incorrectly. We are thinking about multinationalism and multinationalist, but we're not thinking about global, looking at things from a global standpoint. And to be able to get to the second human evolution, we're going to have to forget what country is involved in something. We have to look at what's happening to humanity, with humanity, for humanity at this moment in time. And that's where I look at China and, and people will say, well, what about the one child policy? That was horrible. I said, yeah, but it didn't work. And we learned something from that. That was an experiment. And thanks to John Meacham, the incredibly wonderful Pulitzer Prize winning author of the American Gospel and many, many books that are about Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, you name it. He has really brought some thoughts and ideas into our common understanding and I think one of the directions that he's helped us with is where, where you really take what has been brought forward and look at what it is from a global standpoint, such as the crisis against humanity, what Prigozhin is doing to represent Putin over there in Ukraine, where he's a diabolical, a very evil human being. And so we we have to start looking at what our definitions of evil and what what our definitions of what's right, what's wrong on a global standpoint. That's wrong. That's what he's doing is wrong. But it's called the experiment. And John Meacham talks about the American experiment. 
And so this is all experimental and it's, it's, it's okay. If we label it as I just did about Pregotzin, that this warmonger, this horrible person who's leading these uh, armies for Putin, I'm probably really at fault at saying he's a bad guy and evil. There might be something wrong about that. I doubt it. The full picture all the time. Sometimes there are subtexts there. Not to be inherently defensive of the man, but the defending the theory and concept. What is he pushing back against in that globalism? Ultimately, his charges, from what I perceive, against globalism. Yes. Might right. he be alluding to being in a much broader loop politically? There are very real imperialistic factions of globalism that are seeking to dominate us as species, are seeking to work for their own benefit and gain, are seeking to work geopolitical and social agendas that are harmful and destructive to the human race. Might there be some truth that he is, in his own way, battling back against those forces and we're only programmed and conditioned to believe he is now the evil dictator trying to thwart something less nefarious? Yeah, that's scary. And the reason why I say that's scary, it reminds me of a conversation I witnessed. Well, it was inspired by one of my college professors who said, okay, well, what would have happened to the human race if all those people in Stalin that Stalin murdered were still alive and all the people that were murdered from Mao and Hitler we're still alive. What if what if one person pointed out and one of the students pointed out, well, yeah, you have to also include what modern medicine has done to increase the population of the world. So, yeah, I mean, you've thrown out a very important challenge to this whole discussion about what's ultimately right might presently be wrong out there's always multiple sides multiple dimensions to that being to that existence and it's not even about two sides to every coin that's right itself doesn't actually even have two sides when we really focus on the dimensionality of it and that's going really broad (laughs) but we program ourselves again to those biases of only seeing those limited views those black and white perspectives a lot of times there again we're going back to those conditioned beliefs and those implicit biases of our own memory of our own experience of our own reflection even Sometimes we're not seeing any further than the nose on our own face, our own ego development. Mm. We, by and large, are conditioned as a society not to move beyond those first, second, and third perspectives of ego that place the self first. I see a proliferation and growth in some of those conditioned beliefs now where we are turning even deeper in developing that concept of self rather than being able to step back into those fourth perspectives and beyond of selflessness to see from someone else's view, to see with equanimity, to consider multiple frames of perspective. Very good. I think that the key is that when I hear you say, see, see, just with your eyes, that's an action. That's something that you are doing. You aren't closing your eyes and just relying on everything that's already in your brain you're seeing what's out there and so we we have to do some failure avoidance when it comes to new information we have to make sure that we allow the new information to come into our sensoria and allow it to merge and challenge what's already in our brain and in that process we are allowing the movement of ideas to continue So our challenge is to take new information and allow it to wrestle with what's already in there. And one of my favorite expressions is that the process is the solution. It's not the system as a solution. The system like the AT&T commercial that says the system is a solution. No, the, the, the system is the result of a process. And you have to look at what the process is. And when I'm listening to your challenges today, I'm hearing in everything that you have challenged, I'm hearing a underlying question, what's the process? And where are we (laughs) in that process? 
you know, where are we taking it? And, and when you talk about the sixth human extinction, I'm hearing, okay, are we close to the end? Is the end near? Is it that guy in New York with the placard walking up and down the street saying, you know, the end is near, prepare for Armageddon or, or whatever, you know, or do we have some time? And if we have some time, what are we going to do with our time? Are we going to be the deer with the headlights pointed at us? Do we just stand still or do we move? I think the process here is the solution. And I really appreciate your challenges because every single one of your challenges has a process attached to it. And what we have to do with processes is figure out where we are <laughs> in, in the beginning <laughs> of the process to the end of the process. And, and and that's not always easy because we are biased. It's a word said many times today. What you know, what's our confirmation bias? What's our bias to any kind of a movement that we will need to go into the next step? You know, perhaps, and this is throwing a broad spectrum consideration out there, the death of the concept of our humanness is that next phase of evolution. What we've constructed our meaning to be human might itself be a flawed process. There again, a lot of that concept of ego development is eschewed in that principle. Me first. Part of that model automatically negates and rejects our unity and connection with other beings on every level of consciousness. The moment we separate from that, we've already extincted our existence from a much broader collective of energy and being. Yeah, couldn't say it better myself. Well done. It's broad scope philosophy, if you want to call it that. <laughs> I don't mind stepping up to that ledge and looking over and saying, simply to ask the question, is the process? Yes. I'm going to reel back a second here. You mentioned relying on our eyes as sense. Now, from recent study I'm doing, discovered a principle that says our eyes, our basic five senses, are a secondary line of sense that overrides automatically our energetic sense of consciousness. We don't see first with the eyes is the new concept behind that. We see and sense first with the energy and then look for a program meaning we believe through the eyes. Uh. Concept that's already created and imprinted in our mind and then we look for evidence to validate or verify our constructed reality of truth. Again, that's another direction we hope to walk down later on with an episode we're putting together to bring more meaning together with this. All of our solutions don't always transpire in the present. We have that kind of aspect of moving towards that future where that reality surfaces. Good. <laughs> so I'm going to reel I mean, back. I know we've went down a lot of curves here. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, you just put your finger on it, and uh, I really appreciate it. And I think that must have been the concluding sentence here for our... <laughs> except my dog. <laughs> <laughs> From that perspective, I know we've went really broad today. If you could offer three very pertinent tips today of how we could change that framework to have a more constructive, positive outlook and positive model for change to create that second wave of human evolution. What might those be? Well, I think first you have to focus on yourself and that's what I'm trying to do. And then focus on your neighborhood. And uh, I think we're all doing that by trying to sort our garbage and then start or just continue the discussion. And continuing the discussion is probably the most important thing that we're doing right now. That's what you and I are doing right now. So three things, work with yourself. And I think that we need to start looking at what the words are that we use. And if we need to start using the word globalization in the way it's supposed to be used, which is not internationalization or nationalization, but globalization, then we need to look at what the answers are to the challenging questions of the day, what we need to do. And I think that's starting to happen. I think as we look at global warming, we are starting to look at what we need to do to either arrest the development of global warming or stick our heads in the sand like the ostrich. But I think that 
the whole process that we're doing by discussing it really needs to reach a crescendo point where it's loud enough that our leaders, chosen or not, need to get their acts together and help us get our act together with them. (laughs) I don't know if that's the answer to your question, but I think that keep talking about it is really, really important. And keep thinking about what you can do to just move the discussion forward, because we are not going to define the second human evolution on our own. It's going to have to be a global effort, and it only has just begun. And when I wrote the book, to care for peace. I wrote that book that would have tools for people to use in that discussion, because that's my role. My role is as a facilitator of the discussion, and that is no different than your role in this discussion, because you are doing much more than I am right now. And <laughs> well, thank you. This- well, you are. And, you know, uh, and, and taking the negatives and the worries and the problems that are there and stepping aside from the lights that are glaring in our faces, that's what you're doing. And I I laud that. I laud that. I think that I can't do a podcast. I'm not I, I don't have that makeup. I've always been a facilitator and an amateur philosopher, (laughs) if you want to call it that. A lot of the stuff that I'm coming up with are philosophy based, but really philosophy based on what we need to do now. It's it's focused on the next step. Uh, You know, how are we going to get to the second human evolution? Okay, well, let's talk about it. (laughs) That's that's what I'm doing. What you're doing is you are leading that charge. You are leading that talk. And that's more valuable than I can tell you. And and, uh, I hope that there are a lot of people like you who are continuing this discussion. But all I say to you is please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you from the universe. Thank you. Namaste, the light in me acknowledges the light in you, Jeff. I think the key essential point you've made today is that ability and potential in how we frame things and the energy behind how we voice that. Looking at that idea of globalization is a very neutral, discerning kind of step back that nullifies our ability for action and authority. When we look at reframing that with something perhaps like unification, it's a very action-driven motion behind that act of unifying together, coming together to create that kind of energized and empowered pathway brings us all back into that one source of all being, no matter what we call that source. Thank you for bringing that to light today. You truly have inspired me with this conversation. Well, no, the other way around. Thank you. (laughs) I'm just playing off the energy you fed into this, my friend. And it's all brought me to a really wonderful place of inquiry to look at this on a much broader scope. So thank you for that. And thank you so much, Jeffrey. When we look at the current state of decline and what we know is our world, It's easy to see through the stilted eye of doom. As soaring heat and rampant storms run wild, we can easily see in many regards, both figurative and literal, our world is burning down. Therefore, now is the time of action to plan for a steady, calculated change. To address these issues and foster a more constructive and positive outlook, this episode offers three practical tips when bypassing the often pessimistic view that inhibits our insights in action that lead to this dawn of a new evolution. Time is the fire in which we burn, and what matters most is how we walk through the fire. If you found inspiration and meaning in this episode, please share it with a friend or loved one. And as always, we're grateful for you, our valued listening community. This has been The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker.